You're listening to a podcast from the Trinity Longroom Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. Good afternoon, if you're in Dublin, and good morning, good evening, good night, as per the Truman Show, if you're anywhere else in the world. Um, delighted to welcome you here to the Trinity Longroom Hub. My name is Professor Desil O'Neill. I'm a professor of uh, geriatric medicine. And along with Professor Mary Cosgrove, a professor of German, I co-chair Medical and Health Humanities in Trinity College, Dublin, bringing together the Faculty of Health Sciences and the Faculty of Arts and Humanities and Social Sciences. This is the longest running uh, series of seminars in Medical and Health Humanities in any Irish uh, uh, higher educational institution. And we always welcome suggestions for our next year for uh, potential speakers. So we've had a very rich range. Um, the questions and comments today will come through the Q&A or chat function. And again, we're joined as a hybrid event. So um, because the speaker is near me, possibly will repeat any question that comes or comment that comes from within the room. So really pleased today to have uh, an area that's close to my own heart, that where medical humanities and cultural gerontology, the whole area of focus of understanding aging through humanities, arts, film, cinema, music. And we've got one of uh, the most recognized speakers, uh, Martina Zimmerman, who's a lecturer in health humanities and health sciences in the Department of English at King's College London, one of the premier uh, medical and health humanity sites in the United Kingdom. She has a background training in pharmaceutical sciences, specializing in neuropharmacology, and obtained her habilitation in pharmacology. She's a second PhD in health humanities, has written two books about cultural and scientific narratives of dementia, which I strongly recommend to my trainees, to my students. Um, the Poetics and Politics of Alzheimer's Disease Life Writing in 2017, and The Disease Brain and the Failing Mind, Dementia in Science, Medicine and Literature of the Long 20th Century. And I can wholeheartedly recommend these, both at open access, so free of charge, from the Wellcome Trust funding. And she's currently running a research program on aging, the sciences of aging and the culture of youth, funded by UK Research and Innovation Future Leaders uh, fellowship. So, Martina, really pleased to have you here. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much, uh, Des, uh, for inviting me and for your hospitality uh, here. It's it's an absolute pleasure to be here in Ireland. It's my first time, and it's it's wonderful uh, to 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 speak um, in the seminar series. As uh, Des said, I'm currently running a research program on aging and I want to talk a little bit about it, this research program, its mission, and then one particular uh, question um, related to it. So this uh, research program, the sciences of aging and the culture of youth, really wants to um, explore how we think and how we talk about aging in scientific research, in medical practice, and in wider culture and how the way we do think about aging can affect our own experiences of aging, the meaning we assign to, to aging and to getting older, and also as a consequence, um, how we deal with older people and the decisions we make about older people. The sciences of aging and the culture of use, I hope my animation now does work. 
Yeah. Um, it's invested in challenging cultural pessimism about aging, and it defines pessimism about aging as taking aging as a separate stage in life marked by decline and exemplified by disease. And um, instead of thinking of aging as a phase in life, holding opportunities for growth and development, just like any other period in life. I think uh, uh, pessimism about aging is hugely problematic because it endangers intergenerational solidarity, it shapes perceptions of the worth and value of human beings, and it also um, influences in decisions about care, about uh, research, and about funding priorities. And this research program really would like to inform practices and also policy development in these areas. Working towards this goal, there are various different approaches. I myself, in a literature-based project, explore the dialogue between cultural and scientific, uh, cultural discourses about aging and scientific models of aging. And there are two postdoc-led projects, and these involve engagement with the third sector charities, in, um, in engagement with older people, and um, policy makers. So um, Laura is a sociologist and she explores experiences of aging and um, together with Joe, he himself is a um, literary scholar with a strong interest in policy and um, also uh, social medicine. We aim to develop policy change for the aging population. So one of the key tenets of uh, this program is that we can overcome cultural pessimism about aging by shifting how we think and understand about how we understand aging um, as a lifelong process. So rather than understanding it as something invariably bad that happens at the end of your life, um, this project wants to begin understanding aging as a lifelong process, a process with opportunities and challenges across the entire lifespan. And in this, I find it aligns with scientific accounts of senescence. There is decline that cannot be denied, but there is not by default a step function randomly chosen on this slide. The examples of cellular biology and functionality shown document change across the entire lifespan. Um, the scale is too small to see. Um, it's, uh, all these graphs are plotted against age and uh, they begin at 10 or 20 years of age. And interestingly, uh, gerontologists like Nathan Schock describe aging as a lifetime continuum involving growth, development, and maturation just as much as atrophy and degeneration. And interestingly, the scientific principles concerning aging research laid out by Schock in the 1950s continue to be um, appreciated by gerontologists to the present day. So to consider the implications for understanding aging as a lifelong biological pro uh, process, last autumn, we ran um, a policy lab. And in this policy lab, we brought together a range of researchers uh, and clinicians alongside representatives from the care sector, charities, and the policy world. Um, the report um, that um, evolved around, um, it, that will write up what happened in, on the day of discussions is still in the making once it's available, we make it available open access. Um, what I want to do today in uh, the frame of this paper um, is to discuss and explore one of the recommendations coming out of this lab. And that recommendation is this, that in workplaces, 
and the media, we need to begin to address aging with an optimistic realism, as one participant put it in uh, this policy lab. Optimistic realism that acknowledges that getting older should not set you apart from other people, but it does still come with biological changes. So what do we mean by optimistic realism? Optimistic realism entails an acknowledgement that aging comes with changes that require adaptation, but that aging can be fulfilling and involve development. And um, um, interestingly, um, what we discussed the, this um, uh, this morning, um, also Des had been interested in this publication. There is um, um, a lot of emphasis on decline, loss, and degeneration. There is not enough um, exploration around um, development and fulfillment in older age. And this is um, what this project is driving at. So, how would um, um, optimistic realism work in relation to driving against pessimism about aging. Margaret Morgan Roscolette has explained that pessimism about aging relates to a cultural narrative of decline that has shifted anxieties about growing old to younger and younger ages. This decline narrative extends to values of all kinds, including health, friends and family, economic and social status, and perhaps most of all, cognitive capabilities. The anticipated drama of potential dependency and vulnerability incurred with aging is reinforced by a parallel narrative about successful aging. And this narrative prizes the independent self and thrives in a culture that hails youth as embodying, as embodying energy, potential and hope. So that means that culturally prescribed aging is successful aging and any deviation from this narrative script, real or imagined, furthers negativity about progression on the temporal trajectory towards old age. Introduced during the 1980s, the concept of successful aging wanted to overcome the acceptance of particular disease states in older age. But as advocates of affirmative old age or harmonious aging have pointed out, it denies that material changes of the body are part of the aging process. It retains the youthful body as its ideal and so does not challenge ageism. Ill health in older age such, so comes close to failure and is aligned with concepts of decline. Reflecting on these aspects, I have made a tiny first attempt to sketch out what optimistic realism would look like. And I hope that we might be discuss, discussing this list um, uh, later. To begin changing how we view aging and older age, we found in our policy lab discussion that we need stories of older people, both celebrity and non-celebrity, with a focus on this kind of optimistic realism. So placed in this context, I want to ask three specific questions in this paper. How can prominent published life narratives help overcome cultural pessimism about aging? What does aging deemed worth publishing look like in such narratives and how does it match to optimistic realism? And are such narratives suited to changing how we view aging? And if they are not, why might that be the case? 
Um, I should also say that rather than for um, offering a formulation of ready answers, um, please take this paper more like a, a first step towards a discussion um, and um, the beginnings of exploring what kind of forms, what kind of genres um, are able to voice um, such a kind of optimistic realism we are after and take it also um, as my own grappling with how difficult it is to change how we think about aging. So what is my plan? Um, mindful um, that here in the words of Angela Woods, different genres condition certain kinds of narratives. I will consider different forms of life writing and their possibilities and limitations in projecting optimistic realism about the aging process. For the purpose of this uh, talk, then, I will look at several of May Sarton's diaries and two of Diana Athill's memoirs. And I will uh, pay particular attention to aspects of illness in these narratives. Illness story-making, writes Arthur Kleinman, is prevalent among older people as they weave illness experience into the apparently seamless plot of their life stories whose denouement they constantly revise. In my reading, I will especially look at the role of illness in directing self-perception and self-representation of aging as failure rather than a realistic part of life. Let us begin with May Sarton's later diaries. As episodic life writing, a diary records daily occurrences and emotional responses. It drives uh, its drive is forward-looking without foreknowledge about the plot of what remains of life. As such, it, rep it really represents aging on a lived continuum. And in what follows, I will cover three specific points. In At 70, Sarton does not consider herself as old and from this safe vantage point feels able to write optimistically about aging. Experiencing acute illness in After the Stroke catapults Sarton into perceived old age. And at this point, she avoids writing about aging. In her final three diaries, Endgame, Encore, and at 82, Sarton does pitch herself as ill rather than old almost trying to get around accepting material changes of the body. In making these points, I want to explore the role of illness in Sarton's endeavor to pitch aging as desirable. I agree with Chris Gillard that at 70 pitches old age as a phase in life worth attaining. Sarton does this by integrating culturally sanctioned narratives of aging while explicitly arguing against them. For example, in Making Chronological Age, the diary's theme, Sarton follows the cultural narrative that 70 makes a transition to old age. And Barbara Frey Waxman's cover I've here uh, shown uh, writes beautiful about, about this topic. At the same time, at 70 keenly asserts that Sarton is not old yet. Real old age begins when one looks backward rather than forward but I look forward with joy to the years ahead and especially to the surprises that any day may bring. Sarton's position on the future is well supported by the form of the diary as its chronological immediacy moves for, towards the future. It also underpins her argument 
against aging as the autumn of life. A matter of saying farewell, but the strange thing is that I do not feel it is autumn. Life is so rich and full these days. There is so much to look forward to. It comes as no surprise that Sarton begins the diary in spring, symbol of the renewal of life, repeatedly affirming that she is awfully glad to be alive. Sarton seemingly embraces the change that comes with aging when she writes that there are some changes at 70 that mean old age. I don't mind. Yet, she does not detail these changes. Instead, she writes about feeling more herself, happier, balanced and powerful, more able to cope than at 50. These assertions are in line with Sarton's lifelong positive perspective on old age, something that literary scholarship has explored in depth. Accordingly, bodily markers of old age, like wrinkles, are taken as the boon and signifier of a rich, long life. This cultural script works as long as certain as healthy. 70 is not old, especially if good health is in the cards. Health is productivity. Sarton is well and happy in at 70 because she feels total concentration on creation and is able to work in peace. Loss of productivity becomes Sarton's determinant of old age. And in her later diary, after the stroke, she connects illness with old age because loss of productivity comes with acute illness. The stroke in 1986 makes her leap, take a leap into old age instead of approaching it gradually. Sarton perceives of herself as old at this point because she notices significant bodily change that makes her dependent on others. This is the case because both psychosocial and biomedical factors determine how old a person feels. During the year of recovery chronicled in After the Stroke, Sarton becomes intensely aware of her body as constituting the precondition of her vitality, retrospectively confirming her perspective in at 70. Sarton writes that youth has to do with not being aware of one's body, whereas old age is often a matter of consciously overcoming some misery or other inside the body. One is acutely aware of it. Sarton describes her stroke as constituting a radical change of life. But in describing what happens to her, as Einat Avrami would say, she really follows the idea that illness constitutes the negation of one's life rather than an aspect of one's life. She feels that she leads a half-life, can't handle her life, does not choose her life, that she is cut off from what was once a self. In other words, Sarton does adopt the culturally prevalent binary of youth versus old that Kathleen Woodward explores, not perceiving of herself on a lifelong continuum of aging, where changes in bodily function characterize an ongoing aging process. As is the case in many illness narratives, writing is Sarton's strategy to regain control. Sarton explains that she revised after the stroke before it went to press, but regaining control goes much farther than being able to choose 
what contents of daily life to share with the public. It also concerns the kind of narrative told. Even if Sartre navigates the frustrations of her condition after the stroke, follows what Hawkins describes as the rebirth myth. A stroke remains an acute event where the individual's emphasis rests on recovery, not the capabilities lost. Sarton describes herself as the phoenix who begins to rise from its embers after having reached the very end, death itself. Her writing and recovery complete, Sarton finds that now that I am well again, I am not any longer the very old woman. It is from this vantage point that she's able to adopt a position typical of what Lynn Sandberg terms affirmative old age, that is to accept the aging body as part of the human condition, a body that will become frailer the older one gets. The body is part of our identity and, and its afflictions and discontents, its donkey-like refusal to do what ought to be done, destroy self-respect. How beautiful an old face has been to me. So if I mind the wrinkles now, it is because I have failed to ascend inside to what is happening inside. And that is a great adventure and challenge, perhaps the greatest in a lifetime. A part of accepting the human condition at least being well, I may be able to do better at it now than even a month ago. This passage resonates with the tone of At 70, where Sartre muses on old age as still in the future. Having performed in literary form and myth her full recovery, she is able from the vantage point of renewed health to consider aging once more as a desirable phase in life. It has been a long journey, but now I do not think about the past at all, only rejoice in the present and dream of the future and my 75th birthday. There is so much I still hope to do. And I rejoice in the life I have recaptured and in all that still lies ahead. Arthur Frank, in his typology of illness narratives, explores the restitution narrative as one that offers no real scope for the inner development of the author narrator. And Sarton's desire for closure feels painfully unrealistic, especially when read with the benefit of hindsight and against her final three diaries. Endgame, Encore, and at 82, reveal what Stefan and colleagues term the social and biological correlates of subjective age. Shortness of breath and decrease in grip strength are just two phenomena increasingly mentioned by Sarton as indicators that she has reached old age. Yet in her final three diaries, Sarton pitches herself as ill rather than old. She suffers from a heart rhythm disorder which may give rise to another stroke. She also has digestive difficulties and complaints about fatigue, both of which are possible effects of the drug amiodarone that controls her fibrillating heart. Indigestion in turn causes her constant pain and increasing frailty. These conditions are experienced by many older people. They connect to clinical and physical performance measures that are important for the health and functioning of the individuals, but are not necessarily diseases. Yet in fashioning herself as ill, 
Sarton can describe herself as going through this year of getting well and thinking about old age, not living it. Taking a bodily state as illness rather than a new normal is, I find, a powerful move in Western culture because illness seems to hold out the hope, even the expectation of betterment and of cure. It is, as Ellie Claire has put it, a commitment to the future. Fashioning herself as ill, not old, is Sarton's strategy not to accept her situation as the new normal. That is, to reject the idea that I simply must learn to live with it and forget about imagining that some doctor might find a solution. In addition, in Encore, Sarton rarely uses the word old, the notion of triumph in the diary's subtitle and the text throughout also keeps this journal knitted to the cultural narrative of overcoming, rather than accepting old age as a part of life that might bring aspects of decline. And instead of accepting that aging might entail a decrease in outputs, Sarton keeps comparing her current productivity to that of her younger self, feeling she does nothing, nothing whatever. Reading Sarton's full body of diaries along her authorized biography, I concur with Chris Gillard that Sarton never fully accepted old age, not at least as something that had really happened to her. Chronicling her situation in diary entries perhaps enhances the challenge of writing about old age with a degree of optimism. The form itself suggests that aging involves a process of decline as the passing of time becomes clear from entries being dated. Concurrently, as Susanna Mintz has observed, the struggle with daily life and lack of success in aging because of her decreasing autonomy and lost youthful energy are emphasized by the intervals during which Sarton does not write. Sarton really only accepts aging as characterized by bodily changes in the final pages of her last diary at 82, where she realizes that it will be good for me to talk about old age, find out where I should bear down more heavily on myself and where I should let things go. This perspective to take a step back and review the situation in relation to her lived life comes late for Sarton, perhaps because she writes in the form of a diary. Reading Diana Athill's memoirs somewhere towards the end and alive, alive O, oh, against Sarton's diaries will enable further reflection on the role of retrospection in writing optimistically about aging. That Attil could produce these narratives already suggests the privileged perspective of a certain degree of health and well-being after having lived a long life. Storytelling happens from the vantage point of a life's happy closure, and the product of this writing becomes part of the author-narrator's legacy, formulating and embodying the culmination of success in aging. Attil agrees with Sarton that being over 70 is being old. 
Suddenly, I was aground on the fact and saw that the time had come to size it up. But in comparison to Sarton, Attil takes a life review approach from outside the ongoing aging experience. Interpreting from the vantage point of ripe old age, Attil can be more open about some losses in old age. Therefore, she's able to offer these two memoirs as the learned wisdom of a lifetime. Such an interpretation comes with the reader's different kind of engagement and they enabled by a life review. We take Attil as having reached old age rather than following her through the chronicle struggles towards it. Her chronological age, 89 in the first book and 98 in her second, further contributes to the reader's perception that Attil has aged successfully. She approaches a century. Having aged successfully, Adhill can portray herself as one rather lucky old woman and her account as offering object lessons which demonstrate how not to think about getting old. Reflections on loss seemingly come easy for Adhill. The form of the life review gives her much more freedom than Sarton has as regards editing and omissions. Even though Atil lost her lover to a heart attack and experienced a friend's dementia, she focuses on what might be seen as minor losses where she articulates loss as part of aging. Such losses comprise the interest in novels and or her appetite. They also include no longer feeling sexual interest, which she describes as a new sort of freedom. These losses, some more significant than others, can be optimistically rationalized from the certainty that she has reached a comfortable place. Sarton, for example, worries about when and how the moment of moving to a nursing home might come and how she could finance it. By comparison, at the time of writing about such issues in her second memoir, Attil finds such questions successfully resolved. In addition, Attil can admit, admit some of the losses because she places them alongside the gains and riches of old age. She continues to drive and takes pleasure in gardening and most of all indulges in writing. Sarton writes a lot about gardening too, but in her case, the reader is compelled to appreciate gardening as Sarton's way to contain depression and loneliness in daily life, not least as it had played a major role in Sarton's Journal of a Solitude which she published in 1973 at the age of 60. In Attil's account, we take gardening as a recipe for healthy old age. Where Attil writes about the uh, reality of the body's exhaustion, she chooses vocabulary slightly at odds with the fact explored. Twindling energy is one of the most boring things about being old. The notion of boredom deflecting attention from the experience of true loss. In a similar way, Atil mentions, perhaps with a pinch of irony, the luxury of the wheelchair, which many misguided old people dread. In looking back, Atil is able to stay in control more readily than Sarton, who never has the benefit of foreknowledge. Organizing her accounts by themes, Atil controls the trajectory of experience as well as the plotline. Sarton, by comparison, writes from within the physical situation of decline and struggles against this decline moment by moment. 
perhaps best bit put into words in the diary's titles themselves, Endgame and Encore. Writing from the vantage point of retrospection also empowers Atil to narrate acceptance of her mortality. She can ignore the taboo of writing about death exactly because, to put it with Anne Borak Weiss, her chronological age brings her close to death. Death is, death is no longer something in the distance, but might well be encountered any time. The view on life projected here strongly aligns with Mary Mothersill's insight that fear of death is nowhere near as problematic as the fear of dying before one's time. A sensation palpable, especially in Sarton's last four diaries. Like Sarton, Attil is very clear about the fact that good health in old age removes one from concerns about old age. She deftly summarizes what makes a good old age as she reviews her family history. Pain and discomfort associated with physical decline strongly influence how one experiences old age. And Attil can write so optimistically about it because she largely remained free from such complaints. For Attil, a heart attack would be the timely conclusion of a long and good life, not a tragedy. While dementia represents the ultimate specter of old age, only those old people afflicted with senile dementia move on to another plane. For the rest of us, as we have sown, so do we reap. Aging in life writing, at least to some degree, is biased by their author narrator's uh, continued cognitive prowess. So what to conclude from all this? Sarton and Ethel both reflect the self-reliance and self-sufficiency accrued over a lifetime that qualitative research has identified in never married older women and lesbians. Both women were unconventional in their lives and works. Both came from privileged white backgrounds that lie beneath successful aging. They had different literary careers, but in the texts explored here, both write to overcome death as the end point of the continuum of aging in which they live and write. Coming back to my opening questions, what these narratives convey and confirm is that aging deemed worth telling is a combination of the absence of disabling conditions and high cognitive and physical functioning that enables continued engagement with life and desired activities. And these are notions matched by the revised version of Rowan Kahn's definition of successful aging in 1997. Successful aging is a powerful cultural script and prominent life writing as discussed here echoes rather than challenges this concept. It buys into ideals rife in capitalist societies, including productivity and independence, and is slow to accept that not all material changes of the body are diseased states. More to the point, the narrative strategies both diary and life review adopt reflect the pressures by success, created by successful aging. Successful aging takes as its foil the priv white privileged middle-class background of the Western cultural context. And this context encourages triumphalist plots that have a positive closure. Like successful aging itself, 
Such plots leave little room for the real suffering and distress that may come with bodily change in older age. This appears particularly relevant for a genre like the diary, where chronological order may seem to impose a narrative of decline against which the author-narrator has to plot. But life as lived lacks, lacks the coherence of plot that a life as retrospectively narrated can display. Thinking with Cheryl Martigny, this means that anxieties arise because successful aging anticipates a narrative arc, which in life as lived reminds, remains to a certain degree beyond an individual's control, and in life as narrated can only be fully appreciated from the perspective of its endpoint. Attil grapples with change in older age, but her narrative perspective enables her to know that she mastered this change. Where Sarton struggles with concerns as to what the future might bring, Attil, from the vantage point of retrospection, is able to organize key life events in a way that supports an optimistic view on aging. Conceptually, to break through this anxiety is hard to do also because narrativity is an enduring concept across disciplines and sectors. Amongst others, it has significantly shaped how gerontological endeavors have attempted to understand the search for meaning and identity in relation to <coughs> aging. This is significant because the temporal aspect of narrative, especially its movement out forward and towards an ending, expresses biological aging, including aspects of degeneration, decline and loss. It's for another paper to explore whether, for example, oral history taking and its focus on episodic experience is better suited or more credible for overcoming pessimism about aging. Stories of aging need to accommodate the fact that much of aging happens along a continuum between health and disease. And as Tom Cole has pointed out, that where we are on this continuum is to a great extent not within our control. Sarton's lived experience brings this home, but writing about aging as lived on this continuum and with the prospect of shifting further along this continuum towards death does not sit well with the ageless ideal inherent in successful aging. Adopting an optimistic, realistic perspective on old age is easy when it comes with good health and when it is done from the vantage point of having lived a significant part of this old age in good health. Likewise, to fashion aging as illness can help in the moment of an acute condition when recovery is forthcoming. But this strategy has more of a negative impact on self and quality of life when the new normal corresponds to an eternal state of ill health. Said all this, adjusting to an ever-changing new normal is difficult. This is especially the case when considering, as for example, Thiago Moreira and Paolo Palladino, but also Seamus Omani have pointed out, that medical problems of old age have been allocated to disease-specific concepts for many decades. So as long as the search for a cure determines how society thinks about the role of medicine in older age, I think there is little hope for acceptance of biological change in aging. Thank you very much. Um, I'm much looking forward to...